Welcome along to the Carpangola Chronicles podcast. This is episode number 29. And of course, this is the part two with Julian Cundiff, where we talk about Julian's angling all through the 90s. We talk about bait, how he went about his baiting approaches, what kind of bait he was using, how he caught these different fish, the different waters he was on, the people that influenced him along the way. Lots of different carp angling history in this episode, so you're definitely going to want to tune in. Before we jump into the episode, we need to, of course, announce that this one is brought to you by carphuntergiveaways.co.uk. Carp Hunter Giveaways run prize draws for pretty much anything that you can think of when it comes to carp angling tackle. Um, bed chairs, bivvies, rods, you name it, they run a prize draw for it. So definitely go ahead and check those guys out. Last announcement before we dip into the episode... Our hook baits are soon to be released. These have been a long time coming. We've had a, an overwhelming amount of people reach out and ask when these are coming out. There's some very, very proven recipes that are actually quite technical and quite a bit different from the rest of the market. So check those out if you want to do so. They will be coming out very, very soon. We are looking to release them around about mid to late March. Okay, so if you are interested, keep an eye on social media and of course just drop us a message if you want to reserve a pot. Without further ado, let's jump into episode number 29 with Julian Cundiff. How did the 90s start for you in your world of carp angling? Um, well, to be honest, um, the 80s had set the scene for me and I was sort of coming to grips with it. Um, but on local waters, I suppose I'd um, I'd got to that stage where I was flip-flopping between waters um, and I, I'd sort of learnt my trade. Um, so I was, I was quite happy with that. Um, but by then, I'd obviously qualified as a legal advisor um, and I was having to, the problem is the more successful you get at a job, the better you get at a job, the more responsibility you get. So it was, I, I was sort of, it, it was that all of a sudden I had to grow up for want of a better word. The days of, you know, nipping off early, getting in a little bit later were long gone. Um, and it was, um, I'd started dating a girl called Julie. So that was my, probably my, my first serious girlfriend. So it was, um, it was a question of um, all of a sudden weekends for fishing were out again. <laughs> Julie and Jules, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was that was a that was a ten year uh, ten year event. <laughs> did, did that? So I mean, this isn't often spoke about in great detail. Anyway, did did that derail your angling a little bit? You know, no, women, no, and... uh, women have never derailed my my fishing. Lack of, you know, when, when you break up with a partner, that that's quite difficult. But I've always sort of managed to balance my girlfriend or my fiance or whatever with my fishing. Um, certainly when, when it got to, I suppose she was my first proper serious girlfriend that I thought, well, if she dumps me, I'm going to be really upset. So she was probably the first one. But yeah, it, it, it can be quite difficult. I think it's, it becomes difficult when you've had a girlfriend for a while and all of them a sudden discover fishing because it's something brand new. But generally, um, the girls I've been with, I was fishing before I met them. Yeah. So, so it's a bit of a theme. softer process. 
<clears throat> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and some some people who sort of know you as well actually think you go fishing more than you really do. Because obviously they see all the magazines, the videos and all that. And they say, oh, I thought you fished all the time. I said, no, no, just do, you know, just do two nights a week. So, you know, when I was dating Julie, I just did not fish weekends. I fished midweek so that we would have weekends together. Yeah, and that, that's the way to do it, isn't it? And to be honest with you, it's kind of better for angling anyway, because as you know, midweek is generally quieter, venue dependent, of course. Um, so at, at this stage, obviously 1990, you're doing just just two nights a week, is that right? Yeah, I'm doing two, I'm doing two nights a week most weeks. Um, it was probably it was the year I think I'd spent the 80s fine tuning my art, and I think the 90s were aware where I milked it to death. So the 80s, I made a lot of mistakes with waters, moving off of water, starting a water, thinking they didn't feed in winter. So the 80s was a learning curve. And with a learning curve, it's not always upwards trajectory. And so I made as many mistakes as I made breakthroughs. And I remember that the 90s was the first year where I thought I could put everything I've learned in the 80s into force and I, th I think the first thing that i really noticed was um it was the first year i ever used what i would count nowadays as modern technology a bait boat <laughs> <laughs> is that something yeah. you still use now or not no no i haven't used no. a bait boat for two, 30 years nearly um i was fishing a place called the tylery which many people who who are listening to this, who remember the 90s, will remember seeing pictures of me fishing the big pit. Mm. Now, the tylery at that time was 27 acres. Um, and with the greatest will in the world, with the gear we had then, you could never cast to the middle. Not, not really and fish effectively. Um, so you tended to fish at somewhere between 50 and 90 yards. And it was well before the dates of, days of spawns and really spawns, to be fair. So it was catapult, throwing stick, anything like that. And two local, well, say two local lads to the area who I know as Donnie Mark and Big Steve had fished Longfield. Um, and they were they were certainly ahead of the curve. They were the first guys with the bent hook rig the first guys with uh, mass baiting of maize, the first guys with 25 mil boilies, the first guys with a bait boat. Now, I remember in sort of 1990, I got down there early. I'd been baiting up during the close season with my pound and a half, two pound of bait four times a week. And these guys had a bait boat and they were literally filling it in with a maize. I mean, I'm thinking, well, how can maize outfish my quality boiling and that first first couple of days of the season i think i sat next to one of the guys with a bait boat and it, i think he probably had maybe a dozen fish over about four days to my two and i just realized that no matter how good you think you've got something going all of a sudden somebody comes up with something new which was mass baiting of maize they'd also got early versions of spawns so they'd run the boilies out with the um uh with the um bait boat and then as they got fish they would literally chuck these spawns as far as they could and they just smashed me to pieces and i realized that come 1991 i was either going to have to <laughs> either get completely smashed or i was going to have to join in and i joined in and um uh, it, 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 I can only say it made a massive difference because all of a sudden you could fish 
at 110 yards, 120 yards, 130 yards, and and it was it was it was simple. It, it made carp fishing very easy, very 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 easy. It's a big leveler, isn't it? For sure. I mean that those guys that can really chuck it out. I'm not one of them, unfortunately. Um, they, you know, they they really do have an edge, don't they? Um, oh yeah, the, the, I, I I could not fish. I don't think I mentioned this in part one. My mate would chuck out with six pound line, a 15 or 20 pound leader, two tiger nuts or a tiger nut, a boilie. And he could probably do about 90 to 100 yards. And he was always picking up the odd big fish every Saturday or Sunday morning. I get more fishing in over bait. And I realized that what was happening is those fish, they were having the feed and then mm. they were moving out of distance. Yeah. And I realized that these guys were feeding, not only now were fishing at distance, but they were feeding at distance. And those carp weren't coming in at 50, 60, 70 yards unless it was perfect fishing conditions. So I was 30, 40 yards short of where I needed to be. And when we got the boat, it was, I mean, the first boat we got was um, one we had made by a model boat maker who had no idea about carp fishing. And it was quite good because he built a hopper on the back of it with a spinning plate. So when the hopper emptied, it would hit the spinning plate and throw the boilies out in a circle, which was really good. But the problem is, yet the problem is the power that you need, the battery power to spin a plate was just killing the battery for the boat itself. I mean, you know, we're talking 30 years ago, primeval days. And you'd run it out twice, and then it would just die in the middle, much to our embarrassment. Um, and so we ended up getting a Broadlands boat, which was really the Broadlands bait launch. Bought Broadlands bait launchers from Norfolk were the first proprietary um, bait boats, and that that just made it easy. And to be honest, all you did we painted the bait the boat yellow at the front black at the back so as long as you could see black it was going out when you could see yellow it was coming towards you and it, it just got boring I'm, i've never ever found carp fishing boring but this was i just used to turn up on the factory bank um i used to pick any one of four swims so location wasn't really important i used to set the video up i used to set three rods up i used to f have four spare batteries and i simply used to drop the rig the chopped up baits in the back of the boat and wherever a cart jumped at somewhere between 80 and 150 yards i used to troll it out there drop it on its head and sometimes you would get a run before the boat was even back yeah amazing um, amazing which was okay but it got boring i'll be honest <laughs> all of a sudden i thought all i'm doing is just catching carp there is it was you know you get 20 25 20s and don't get me wrong they were great fish but all of a sudden, I felt a bit. I felt that the journey, the destination, was overtaking the journey, um, and it just got very boring. <laughs> I hate to say that, but it got boring. How long did you fish the Tauri for? Uh, that was my last year on there, um, and it was the first year. And I always remember this: that Dave Chilton came up with Christ and Heavy Metal Putty, or a version of it. Yeah. And what we used to do is we used to put a shot on the line mould the putty around the shot, and then we used to troll it out 130 yards. Well, it, for the first week or two, I never got any fish, and I thought, well, this is really, really strange. And, of course, when you wind in from that distance, you are pulling through weed bed after weed bed after weed bed. And when you used to get it back, all you got left was a shot. 
Now, what had happened is this initial set of putty hadn't got the proper adhesion. And literally after about an hour in the water, it was falling off the shot. Mm. And all of a sudden I was fishing a 12 inch zig rig. (laughs) (laughs) It was like that always taught me to tank test things. And the problem is at 150 yards, 130 yards, you were trying to wind carping. And I'll, I'll use the expression, wind them in over three or four weed beds with a bent hook rig and it it didn't do them any good i'll be honest you know mm-hmm. at that range to to get any form of effective bite registration and again you might see pictures of these i used to have swingers and i got three ounce leather barrow zip leads glued on the on the swinger yeah. arm so mm-hmm. the, the inline ones and then i had a, a lead cl- a, a really stiff lead clip and that really was the only way that you could show dropbacks and Many a time until we got that sorted out, you'd wake up in the morning and one was on the end, but nothing had shown. And it just got, it just ceased to be exciting to me. Mm. You, didn't you have the record out of there? Oh, I probably had the most fish out there. Um, I, I never had, the, I never had the biggest fish. From the, you know, I could consistently say that in the 80s, 90s, noughties, 2010s and 2020s, I may catch the most fish, but there's not very often I catch the biggest fish in the lake. You know, eventually I do, but I'm certainly not more of a, I'm certainly not a bounty hunter. Mm. I'm more of a Hutchinson than a McDonald's. So (laughs) the way I fish, the way I present my baits, the way I bait, the way I target fish, um, I, I tend to fish for numbers of fish. So, yeah, I, I, I never, ever got the biggest fish, which was imaginatively called the big one. Mm. <laughs> I never got that. Nor did I get sumo, nor did I get brick shithouse. I think I had every other big fish, but not those. Those were the three biggest fish, and I never caught any of those. But, in fact, I actually did catch one, and I played it in from 120 yards, and... At the tile factory, the edge of the water is literally discarded child, tiles, sand, clay. And as I was playing it in, I'm stepping back, and my mate is about to um, land the fish, and it's a 12-inch hook length. And as I'm about, to, as he's about to land the fish, I drop my rod a bit. The lead hit the bottom and popped the hook out, <laughs> literally one inch from the net. Now, instead of having a go at it, he turned round to me and said, that's the big one. And I'm like, net it. And it was too late because they never waddle <laughs> towards you, do they? They yeah. always they always waddle away. And that was the nearest I ever got to catching that fish, which at the time was probably upper 20s um, in comparison to the ones I've been catching at 25, 26, 27. That was, that was probably upper 20s. But you just have to take it on the chin and I never let anybody net my fish now, not unless they're small ones. I would never let anybody net a very big fish unless I was walking it backwards and it was covered in weed. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Just to backtrack slightly and, and even swerve off track a little bit, just because people listening will, they'll probably want me to ask you say about, obviously you caught many, many fish and I was obviously a little bit off on my history there. What, you've obviously been around a lot of big fish anglers that, you know, like you you mentioned, Richie McDonald. Yeah. What is it you feel is the difference between someone like you who clearly catches a shed load of fish and then someone like Richie, who is just seemingly very gifted at picking out the bigger ones? Uh, Well, first of all, the desire for it. 
he, he wants the biggest fish over all the other fish. So first of all, there's nobody who goes on a water with 200 carp and just catches the big fish. That, 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 that yeah. doesn't happen. The guys who tend to catch the big fish or appear to catch big fish regularly are guys who fish lesser stock venues. I mean, Terry Hearn is the, you know, everybody thinks Terry Hearn's, you know, the greatest big carp angler, and he may well be. But when he fished for the parrot at um, wherever it was, was it Wazing or whatever, he fished a water where the parrot was that had a very high stock level. He didn't catch the, the parrot, second fish, third fish or tenth fish. I think he caught, was it over 100 carp? It, it is impossible yeah. to select the big fish when there is a high number of carp. Yes, occasionally people get lucky. And yes, there are tactics that deter the smaller fish. But I think really the first thing is desire. The second thing is targeting the water. And the third thing is you literally have to ignore other fish. You know, you, you'll see people saying, I saw the fish there, but it was mm. only the upper 20s. I didn't see the one I wanted. Now, I can understand if they've had every other fish and there's the 40 pounder they want. But some of these guys are just literally ignoring 20 and 30 pounders because it's not the one he's, they want. And fair play to them. There's no way I could avoid a 20 or a 30 pounder just because there was a 42 somewhere else. Not not that I could cast the 42, but it's 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 a mindset that I've not got. And also, I fish in a way to get bites rather than, you know, some of the methods, you know, the, the stiff hinge rig, the chod rig and things like that, and the way that they spread boilies about, they don't use small baits, these, but they're all counterproductive to lots of fish, but they're productive to big fish. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah, you're right. I think, I think you're right. Anyway, you can swing things in your favor to, to, you know, single out the big ones. Obviously you can angle where they are, you know, which you touched upon, but it does come down to a numbers game, doesn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. You know, sometimes you just got to wade through them for sure. Yeah. Okay, so, so there is no the, the, there's there's no magical secret. There's no magical bait rig. Occasionally, a, a bait will come out which will be less attractive to smaller fish or more attractive to big fish. However, what you want to view it, and occasionally there are hooks and setups that are less likely to catch smaller fish. But I, I don't think there is a magical bait or rig that only catches the big ones. So presumably, sort of back then in 1990, you were you were with Nutribaits, um, and you mentioned that the guys on the Tylery were were fishing with maize, and presumably yeah. you were on a on a <laughs> on a boilie then. So I was wondering what your thoughts on sort of like with with boilies picking up bigger fish and your experience and how that sort of tied in back there. I mean, were these guys fishing with maize? Were they catching the bigger fish? Or? Oh, no, they were only using maize to keep the fish in the area. They okay. were using, um, when I say maize, they were using uh, probably 10, 20, 30 kilos of maize mm. when it wasn't fashionable to do that. And then they were, they were throwing sticking um, during the day the biggest boilies they could. And now these were 20, 25 mils. They were definitely robbing red and something else. And they were in effect using the the boilies, you know, as the uh, they were putting enough of them out to keep the carp interested in boilies. But if they just put boilies out, they would not have kept the amount of carp in that area. So, yeah. you know, they were using the boilies 
you know, they might, I mean, I'm only guessing they probably had a kilo or, or as it was in those days, pounds. They had probably a pound or two of boilies out there, but they probably had a, 10 times that of maize out there. Mm-hmm. The maize kept the fish there, but there was enough boilies that the carp were picking these big 20 millies up. And I think it also was deterring the bream as well. They didn't catch many bream because they were using big, I mean, they were using size four or size two lure hooks. Um, with massive 20, 25 mil boilies, and they weren't getting many bream pickups, whereas I was catching a lot more bream, you know, because it turned me a lesson that, you know, just because it's maize and you're using a better bait or a sharper hook, if they're putting it in the right place and they're tripping the carp up, it doesn't mean, you know, my setup's any better. It's where you put it. No, no, absolutely. That's it. Where are we up to? You, you're on the Tauri. Um, 1990. We're up to 1991 mm, now, yeah. Obviously, you, you're doing quite well. You're catching lots of fish on the Tauri. You wrote your first book around about then as well, right? Yeah, that, that was, yeah. Um, I don't know if anybody remembers. Well, I'm sure they do if, if, you, if you're listening to a podcast in the 90s. Tim brought his first set of books out well ahead of the time, the um, Carp in Depth books. Um, and there was, um, I think there was four originally, there was uh, Floater Fishing by Chris Ball uh, and Brian Scoyles. Um, there was Cart Waters by me. There was Tackle and Tactics uh, by Ken Townley. And there was Winter Cart Fishing by Derek Stritton. And there was going to be one on Particle Fishing. There was going to be one on the Carp. Um, and it was, a, you know, and it was well ahead of its time. And Tim, in effect, asked me to do the one on Cart Waters, which, you know, if you're a kid of 2020, you're going to think, how could you have a book that size on cart waters? Well, believe me, you could. And it was a question of uh, you reading the BK books, selecting the ones, ringing up, making sure the information was correct. And so that was that was my first book, Cart Waters, in 1991. For um, although I call it Angley Publications, it was actually Paisley Wilde at that time. But you know, it was my first published book in 1991. So it was a, a proud moment and earned me all of 500 pounds. I'll never forget that. I got <laughs> I got paid 500 pounds as a one-off payment for it. But it's it's never been about the money writing books. No. It was it was just, you know, how many people have written a cart book. But what was funny is that some of my more experienced um, friends threw me many blinds and they gave me names of waters that never existed at all, or if they did exist, um, yeah. they were highly disguised. And, um, yeah. you know, I, I was quite naive in those days and there, were, there was no internet to research it. So they tell me about certain waters in, in the Sheffield area that had carp to £39 and and of course, when it came out, they, they, they found it highly amusing. But you know, it was of its time. It was quite, um, quite funny. But it, yeah, it, it was it was good to get that to get that first book out. And of course, yeah. at the same time, you know, Cartwheels was really starting to make a name for itself. And of course, mm. along came Rob Maylin's Big Carp as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, five hundred quid. It, you're not going to set the world alight, are you? But I bet you were just chuffed just to. To, to have written a book and get it out there. And I mean, I imagine it was very flattering, the whole process. Oh, right? well, I mean, I've got to remember that five years ago, um, I was, you know, sending my first article to Tim Paisley yeah. saying, is this any good? Yeah. And now he's saying, can you write a book? I mean, yes, it was 
And it was the right book for me to write. I wasn't experienced enough yet to be giving people information about catching carp on a regular basis, to be fair. So, you know, carp waters was more about, it was like the mathematics guide, wasn't it? It was something that anybody could have done, I guess. But it was my first book, so I'm very proud of it. Yeah, very proud of it. It, you know, it was the era where publications were just started to take off. You know, you'd got Cartwell, which was monthly. And then all of a sudden, or, or in fact, actually Cartwell could have been bi-monthly. I'm not sure. And then all of a sudden, Big Carp came in as well. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the BK guides. I, they'd been out for a while yeah. at that point, right? Oh, yeah. There was the, a, the, quite a few of them, wasn't there? There was five. There was 500, 1,000. And then I think... <laughs> And again, they, they were incredible guides. And, you know, you have to put yourself back in that era. And they were yeah. the guides that you read to find out how to fish X, Y, and Z. What's the telephone number? And yes, they weren't always correct. But I tell you what, they were a great start. You know, and I would think anybody who can't fish in the, you know, mid 80s to early 90s will have looked at those books at some stage, even if they don't admit it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, hundred percent, hundred percent. So you you you've been fishing the Tauri. Obviously, you you've had a good result there. Uh, where do you move on from there in terms of your your time on the bank? Um, to be fair, I, um, I started fishing um, just local waters around me. I, I, I went back to um, to Drax. In fact, I started fishing Willow Park quite regularly in the winter. Then um, by then, I got a car. Um, I got a, a car that worked. And I was actually able to drive down to Willow Park in um, in Surrey. And by then, Andy and me were really good friends. And I then got a permission to fish Willow Park whenever I wanted, which was great. And I, I remember it was all of a sudden I, I was able to take my friends down there fishing, you know. And again, it was that time when there wasn't great winter waters up here. And, you know, we'd go down to Willow Park in, you know, October, November, December, January. And you were catching 20 doubles um, in a weekend. And often more. And it, it, it was just great fishing. It was all of a sudden I could start taking people fishing. And all of a sudden I realized that actually my writing was starting to have an influence because I'd write about these places that all of a sudden people would be there who'd read my writings and had turned up and were at these places. So it, it, it was um, it was it was a different era. I bet that was bizarre, right? Um, it, it, it was. Yeah, it was. Um, it was. Um, um, it was it was quite strange to see people and they come and chat to you and um, of course I was cutting my own throat at times because I, <laughs> I was I've always been one I don't have any secrets um, and I could see people doing exactly what I was doing and it was working as well um, and I realised that you know fame or whatever had was a two pronged sword you know you really could um, <laughs> you could do yourself yeah. over because being quite open as I was, I mean, you'd be amazed how many people fish there. I certainly know that Chile fished down there. I think Dave Lane may have fished there. You'd be amazed at how many, well, Ian Russell, you'd be amazed at how many well-known carp anglers fish Willow Park. Mm, mm. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. I mean, at, at this kind of, in this era, you're obviously fishing for, for upper 20s, really. I mean, what... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you catching thirties at that point? Or no, no, not at all. No, but my, my waters, um, my local waters weren't doing fish that size, and and didn't really start doing that sort of size of carp till the mid nineties. Yes, the odd thirty pounder uh, was being caught, but um, it was one of those things where I was never a 
uh, pounds and ounces, man. I, I love the journey of going carp fishing, and I love the indicator going up, and I love the fish going in the net. But um, I'd realised by then, because Tim had said it to me once, he says it's, it's not about the size of the fish you've got, it's the person that you'll be remembered for. And Tim Paisley did catch big carp in, in later years, mm. but in the 80s and 90s, yes, he'd have 30 pounders, but Tim was never talked about as a big carp angler. He was talked about as, um, you know, as a publisher, a writer, um, a historian, mm. um, a, a, an innovator. And I, just, well, yeah. and, and I just thought, do I, I'm living in the wrong part of the world if I want to make my name catching lots of big fish and the same ethos in 2020 was the same ethos I did in 2000 that I did in 1980. I was happy doing it on my terms. So, you know, I was happy catching them between 17 and 28 pounds, to be honest. Were the whole of the nineties pretty much spent angling in the, the more northern part of the UK? Did yeah, you venture I, I, down again? Or... I mean, I, I would venture down and, and, and I'd have trips here and everywhere. But you've got to remember that, again, I was in a long-term relationship for all of the 90s. Uh, I certainly wasn't going to be fishing weekends. Um, and it, it was it was generally had to be overnighters. I needed my fix of carp fishing. And I needed to go once or twice a week. I, I, you know, I have that desire now, you know, even if it's only for an hour or two, I can't go two weeks and then go for a week's fishing. I would rather do three midweek overnighters two weeks in a row than have a week on the bank mm. a month down the line. So it was always about the local fishing um, and things like that. And um, what I realized was that carp fishing was definitely started to take off. It, it was clear that carp fishing was starting to take off. Um, and in uh, 1992, um, uh, John Bailey, who many people will know, who's done some angling programmes, he's more of a general angler. John Bailey, who was probably one of Course Fisherman's most well-known writers, prolific writers, um, had contacted Crower Books and said, um, do you want to write a, a book on carp fishing, Jules? which was, um, again, I think this really was the start of, of the explosion in me, really, was, um, was writing that first book, Practical Carp Fishing. Yeah, yeah. That was in 92, right? And that, well, I remember him contacting me in 1992 to write oh, this yeah. book. Now, this was well before the days of, um, well, I, no, typewriters were around, but I was never a typewriter man. I was a handwriting man. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I remember quite clearly, quite clearly in 1992, thinking to myself, um, I'll get this year over with. And then I'm just, I'm one of these all or nothing guys. I'm going to have to stop fishing literally for six months. And every night I would go home and I would write words. I mean, I, I'm not sure how many words. There's probably 140,000 words in practical carp fishing. And that, you know, that, that, was, that, was a, that was a big, big task. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, this day and age, we, we write so little. You know, it, it, if I ever have to, you know, write out a few pages of, of written words, like my hand is aching, you know, it's just, just we're just not conditioned to it now. Well, we? and I, I, it was full-time work. I, I was full-time work. And literally, there was three things I had to fit in. I had to fit in full-time work, writing the book, and my girlfriend, Julie, at the time. So it was a question of, well, I cannot fit fishing in round this at all. 
And I wasn't going to punish myself by doing one night a week and just, you know, remind me scratching the scab off, if I can use that expression. And literally, I remember that in, um, in 1993, I just took, um, I did not fish. I fished until the spring of 93. And then literally from, I think, February or March, I did not fish until August of that year. I literally um, took five months off, which for me was a long, long time of not going fishing at all. And every night wrote it on um, A4 paper. I got my next door neighbour, Fran, to type it up because um, um, I certainly wasn't going to type it. So I paid her to type it and we sent it across to Crowwood Books, who um, obviously laid it out. It was yeah. completely different to nowadays. And I remember they'd sent me all the proofs back and it was just a book to me. It, you know, it, I'm, th I'm trying to think back now because it's 27 years ago. And I'm thinking, yeah, it, it was a book. And then um, it came out in in November of that year. Um, and literally, that's when it really exploded for me. Yeah, and I was going to say that. So, I mean, obviously, th this, this book gets published. And then is that you kind of catapulted into... Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. into more of the mainstream. You know, you're you're a bit more of a yeah. not a yeah, household it, name, but you know what I yeah. mean. It's you, you're a bit yeah. more. Yeah. I remember up until then there was very little technical writing going on. I remember it was always stories about big fish, and then if there was technical, it was about catching fish at Save, Yately, Darrenth, all the big fish waters, and I thought this is missing a massive audience of people mm. who want to fish for fish between 10 and 30 pounds who don't live um, in that area. And I wanted to write carp fever for my generation, a how to guide that anybody could pick up, copy it, and it had everything they wanted in. And so it was really being in the right place at the right time, like Corder and people like that. I, I wrote the book and it was literally the A to Z of catching carp in the 90s. Um, and I, I've always realised that um, often it's a question of smoke and mirrors. It, uh, perception becomes reality. And I made sure there was so much publicity about it. And I made sure I emphasised what the book was all about. And there's no point in me trying to sell a book to the guys who are fishing Longfield, Yately, Savvy. They're not going to buy it. So I emphasised it was going to be aimed at all the people who wanted to catch that size of fish who were still mystified. I mean, The Carp Strikes Back is a great carp book. Mm. But if you've never been carp fishing before, you are not going to be able to go yeah. carp fishing. Having read that once, it's inspirational, but you needed to also read carp fever as well. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to combine. It was more carp fever with a bit of inspiration as well. And Nutribate um, decided that they would come on board with me. And what now, I don't know if people know about publishing the books, but you get 10% of the net of the book. So if that book sells for 20 quid, then you will get two pound. But it's not quite that simple. That book will be sold by Crowwood Books to the shops at £12.95 so that the shops can make their £7.05. pence. So in effect, I'm going to make £1.29.5 from that. So you've got to sell a lot of books to make money. And the advance for that book was £2,000. Now that, in effect, I think was... £750 for 
agreeing to write the book. £750 when I handed the manuscript in and £500 the day it came out. And obviously you come to a deal that you'll get, you know, 20 books or whatever. Um, And I realised that the only way I was going to make any sort of money out of this was to buy a substantial amount of books myself. So you you as an an author can buy the books. You don't get them discounted. You you still get them at at £12.95. So I think in the end, I I, I bought a considerable amount of books. Nutribate's also bought a huge amount of books, which they put through their stockists. So Nutribate's, not only was it available in all fishing tackle shops, but any stockists of Nutribate's, they would also sell the book as well. So that was like, whoa, that was a, you know, it was, you didn't have to go into a bookshop to find the book. Yeah. I, and I think a lot of authors do that, don't they? They buy a load of books themselves and, and sort yeah, of, you yeah. know, especially in this day and age of social media, it's, it's probably the way to go of it really, isn't it? Oh yeah. Um, and, you know, and, fulfill it and I do remember that, 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 that year that I did, and I've still got, the, I did 27 slideshows that year from when the book came out at the Carp Society Conference, which I believe was November 93 through to March 94, I did 27 slideshows around the, around the country. Now, uh, that, that was a hell of a lot of slideshows. Mm-hmm. I was doing two, sometimes three slideshows in a week sometimes. Um, and that was sometimes traveling down to Kent, going up to Newcastle, going across to Wales, and then going to work the next day. Yeah, I, I think you just mentioned the Carp Society there. Did you have much to do with the Carp Society in this? Well, this I, I was, yeah, I was, I was very, I, you know, the Carp Society was very supportive. But this was the first time that I started to get, I would say, I, I think the Carp Society was going in a way that worried me. All of a sudden, Horseshoe Lake became the most important thing to the Carp Society, or appeared to be. And I supported the carp society from the, you know, the mid eighties onwards. And all, and it seemed to, to all of a sudden become the, the carp society was obsessed with horseshoe lake to the detriment of everything else. In my views, we, we were putting all our eggs in one basket. So it was all about if you don't, you know, join the the horseshoes. Because I think if you pay £250, you got 10, well, 11 years fishing. It was 11 years in total. But if you didn't support that, you weren't seen as supporting the carp society. Now, there was no way I wanted a ticket for Horseshoe Lake. I wasn't going to do any overnighters there. And I was sort of on occasions led to think that I'd sort of let the society down. I thought, well, no, I've, I was doing slideshows all around the country for the car society. I, I never took a penny. They were all, it was just expenses. The money went back to Horseshoe. And, and I did feel a bit at times at odds with the Carp Society. And I understand why Horseshoe was important. But I think there was a period, and I think it lasted for many years, where they became obsessional with the Horseshoe, which is all right if you fish it or all right if you live down there. But I know from the northern lads up here, it was like, is the Carp Society the Horseshoe Society mm, or is it the mm. Carp Society? And that's that's not a criticism because that's how it came across. If you lived up here, then all of a sudden the Carp Society was becoming very, very Horseshoe Society. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Did, did you spend much time angling around, well, at Horseshoe or around Oxford or any of those waters? No, no. That, that again, it was it was um, it was so far down. I mean, from my house to the hot to you know, you're talking two two and a half hours. Mm. Uh, and I went down on the charity events and I supported it that way. Um, but it, again, it was 
you know, I was a full-time job and I was obviously, um, I've got the girlfriend and I still, I mean, I was still living at home, which was, you know, which was a godsend. I mean, you know, my mum and dad, bless them. I've lost, I've lost my father recently, but I lived at home with my mum and dad till 1996. And, um, you know, I, I paid £40 month aboard every month until I left in 1996. <laughs> <laughs> so anybody who lives at home with their parents, I adored my parents and I still adore my parents. It was the greatest thing in the world, living with mum and dad. And, you know, I, I adored them. They adored me. And, and I, you know, I fish locally. And um, I think in 1990, you know, w- with the explosion of practical carp fishing, all of a sudden people knew who I was. I wasn't just the guy handing out die stickers that mm. people sort of thought they knew. And I remember at the Carp Society Conference, we did 500 books. 500 books. Jeez. Mm, and now some obviously were, were you know, Hinders or Swindon would buy 10 and other tackle shops would buy 10. But we did. And it was the first time ever I thought, wow, people are actually here to see me and have me sign the books. And, you know, I would say that that, you know, practical carp fishing, even now people say that was their first carp book. You know, in the 80s, your first carp book was Carp Fever or Carp Strikes Back. But I think for a lot of 90s carp anglers, Practical carp fishing was their guide to carp fishing. Now, I've got to ask, this is a point that I think from your Corda podcast, they've sort of laboured quite heavily. At what point did you get nominated and and crowned (laughs) the sexiest man in in carp fishing or whatever that title was? Yeah, yeah. Well, what happened was, obviously, everything is a snowball process. And once... Mm practical carp fishing took off angling times contacted me and they said they'd obviously realized that carp fishing was started to get um was starting to become mainstream and they'd still had you know their pictures of a net of roach on the front of the magazine etc etc and i was contacted by carp uh, by, by angling times michelle dennis michelle dennis and she said look we'd like you as a regular writer and it was a quarter page, black and white, weekly. And it was just simply, you know, carp rods, carp reels, carp lines. This is our buzzer. It was, you know, literally the a practical carp fishing really dumbed down. So I started that column and I noticed that within, within two or three months, as carp fishing started to explode, it became half a page black and white. It became half a page colour. It became three quarters of a page of colour. And then by the, you know, the end of 1994, it was a full page colour. Carp fishing had exploded. You know, Mm. it it was. And one of the things, I think one of the things that happened, obviously in in the 90s, it was the era of Freddie Starr at my hamster. And magazines were always looking for an angle, weren't they? And I think, think somebody in in a local magazine have put our, our anglers the most unsexy bunch ever, which I have to say probably, you know, in comparison to train spotters, we're, we're not quite as bad, but, you know, you wouldn't go around an angling pond looking for your <laughs> intended husband if you're a woman. Yeah. And it was a bit of a joke. And I think Angly Times said, you know, they ran this thing uh, to say, you know, and, you know, anglers are sexy. And what we're going to do is we're going to run a sexiest angler award in, you know, Angling Times. 
Now, in 1994, I was 31. And when you're 31, you are sort of very full of your own self-importance or you tend to believe that you're the most attractive man in any room, that kind of rubbish. You, you know, what you, you know, I'd look back at myself at 31 now and think, what was I thinking? Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, th- this is a good idea. And it was, th- there was going to be a vote. And I made sure, you know, uh, in true Donald Trump, <laughs> I, I made sure that um, I didn't fiddle the election, but I certainly made sure that everybody <laughs> I knew voted. <laughs> so I went around all the girls at work. I said, this is the address you need to write to. And if you use these words, it would be quite handy. And um, what happened is, is that... Um, uh, you know, all these girls wrote these letters to Angry Times. And to be fair, I don't think in those days there was a massive take-up of readership writing in to say, we find Des Taylor particularly attractive <laughs> or Julie Cundiff. It was just that, you know, I was the um, I was the best of a bad bunch. <laughs> um, and obviously I'd got enough people to write in and they announced that I'd won it. And um, they printed all these letters that these girls had written and um, I think I was first. I can't. I think Des Taylor was second or third. Um, and they printed all this thing. Now, of course, this kind of stuff is the is the stuff that um, people in um, in mainstream magazines love, don't they? This is the kind of thing the Sun, the Star, they love this kind of thing. And I remember um, I, I knew nothing about it. Obviously, the Daily Star had seen this um, this picture that was in Angry Times, and they. Now, was it the page five fella or was it the page seven fella? There was a page three sun girl. And I think the Daily Star ran a page five fella or page seven fella as competition. And I've I, I not put it forward at all. And I just remember that I got a phone call from one of my mates and says, what on earth are you doing in the Daily Star? I said, what are you talking about? He says, you've got no clothes i'm like you're joking mate he went no and what they've done is they've used a picture where i was holding a carp with a pair of white boxer shorts on mm. and i held the carp and it, you could just about see i got pants on now that's the picture that angley times had used and the um the daily star had run this as who are daily star this is your page five or page seven fella and it was that they, they referred to me as the fish and chippendale yeah. And they used all the classic, he's got a lot to, lot to carp on about, it's not Codswallop, you know, all the most yeah, yeah. funny in engines they could think of. And I remember being at work and I got this this phone call, from, well, in a phone call from the boss, uh, Julian, Mr. Ronsley here, will you pop down and see me in the office? Now, when your boss wants to see you, it's not usually good news. So I sort of walked down the office and it, I knocked on the door, come in. Sit down, Julian. So I sat down and he just took his glasses off like a bank manager. And I love Michael, a great bloke. And he says, Julian, tell me it's not true. I says, what's that? He says, my wife tells me you're naked in the papers. <laughs> I'll be the laughing stock of the justices' clerks. So it wasn't the fact that I was naked. It's the fact that he would be the laughing stock. <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm not quite naked, Michael. Now, luckily, I had a great relationship with Michael's wife because she was a little younger than Michael and she would tease Michael that I'd grow my hair. And, you know, w- w- it was a bit of banter. And um, I didn't get sacked, but, um, yeah, so I appeared as, you know, and it, it, it went, the local newspapers ran it. I mean, obviously, I, I'm no fool. I, I'm a Danny Fairbrass. I'm a Kevin Nash. I milked it for as long as I could. Yeah, yeah. You know, make that and count. that's, you know, 
what basically, and I remember the problem is I also now you may know better than me. Um, was it Channel Four or Channel Five with Paul Yates on the bed? Was that was that Channel Four? Oh, or I four? think that was Channel Five. Channel yeah. Five. Yeah. Now I got yeah. a phone call from Channel Five saying, um, "Mr. Cundiff, you know we've seen what's been in the Daily Star. Paula Yates is doing on the bed with Paula Yates. We'd like you to, you know, do one of the on the beds with Paula Yates." And I'm like. Uh, I'm going to have to run this one past the boss. So I said to the boss, you know, I said, um, Michael, um, you, you know, you weren't very happy with the Daily Star. What would your thoughts be if I was um, laid on the bed on national TV um, <laughs> in shorts, covered in baby oil, <clears throat> being talked to by Paul Yates? And um, it was made, it was, you know, Jeez. it was made, it was made quite clear to me that that was not an avenue. I was going to pursue with gainful employment. <laughs> so um, I, I graciously declined the oh. offer. And of course, we all know the story that in effect, you know, Michael Hutchins, he also, he went on the bed with Paul Yates and um, he probably got more than he imagined. So, so yeah, I, 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 I'm always to blame for the, um, the collapse of in excess in some way. So yeah, that, that was a true story. Yeah, yeah it was. Um, yeah. And so of course, uh, but you've got to remember that for everybody who found that funny, I got castigated it. You know, mm. I turned up at toilets at Syndicate and they got my picture in the hut with the toilet roll hanging out of it. <laughs> I certainly, um, I certainly, I certainly got, I got a lot of stick for it. But, um, you know, nowadays I'd probably be a bit upset if I got stick for stuff like that. But then it was all publicity is good publicity. Yeah, yeah. And, and you... I, I was fish, fishing very hard then. I was, yeah. I was I was also fishing three nights a week every week. Do you regret not not going on the bed no. with Paulie Yates? You don't... Not at all. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> when I got my pension statement when I retired in two thousand eighteen, <laughs> I did not regret it at all. Uh, you know, yeah, it, it was enough. it was that moment of fame. Um, and by then, I, I I'd really got into the overnighter thing, and I was doing three nights in a row every single week on three lakes. Now. This is a water that I'd taken over the running of it because um, carp fishing has started to explode. And one of the one of the local lakes I used to fish was called Three Lakes, which was three separate lakes. Now, uh, when carp fishing exploded, Lake Three had all the carp in it. It had twelve. It had eleven swims and often twelve anglers. And I remember the local owner one time fortuitously saying to me, "Why don't you fish my lake anymore?" And I explained why. I said, "Look, it's just too too busy, Paul." And he said, can I ever persuade you to fish it? Because he knew it was punk I said, well, if it was ever a syndicate and we knocked it into, you know, we knocked all three lakes into one, I'd run it then. And so, in effect, we knocked all three venues into one with cut-throughs and that became the Three Lakes Carp Syndicate. And those fish, from just having a few 20-pounders, just went off the scale. And all of a sudden, that water had some, well in its glory days, had 80 20s and 15 30s, between 10 and 15 30s. At, at the same time? At the same time, yeah. yeah. And now, yeah. that was 93, 94. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I remember in, in 1993, I caught 43 20s on overnighters, which was, which was you know, pr pretty, pretty good in those days. Um, and I remember then in 1994... 
I was it was a crutch then you know I went back and I did it again and now this 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 time I went on um Enervite Gold Heineval and Chocolate Malt the the yeah. original the original chocolate malt now that was an incredible bait with the with a Nash chocolate powder palatant which was like a cocoa powder yeah. now that yeah. was a bait that was equally as good in March as it was in May as mm. it was in July as it was in November and I'll never ever forget that wherever I put that bait it, it was one of the few baits that I could actually drag the carp round the lake with it yeah, I mean the chocolate malt that that was a flavour that some people used. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. Um, in very high levels, oh, yeah. it was glycerol based. People used to whack it in there. Were you uh, were you using it at high levels or? I was only using it at high levels in my hook bait. Um, right. I didn't use it in high levels because literally I was in those days. I was putting, I was fishing three nights a week, and I was putting out five to ten pound of bait every mm. night. Now. You know, nowadays that's not a lot. But you go back to 1995 and talk about using five to ten pounds of bait on an yeah. overnighter, and I was getting multiple hits. Um, and it, it it was it became it was probably a turning point in my angling because I, I, I with the Angry Times um, there was a fox deal with it. In effect, if you were a columnist with the Angry Times and the carp fishing. You had to go to Fox. You, you know, it was part of the Fox deal. And Nash was really good about it. He said, I understand that, Jules. I, you know, I, you have my blessing to go to Fox. So, in effect, I was Fox, I was Diawa, and I was Nutribase. So, you know, that's why I, I always have total admiration to Kevin. Kevin wasn't like, well, you know, if you go to Fox, never, ever, you know, grace my door again. We still yeah. stayed mates. Mm. Um, because I, I, I never ever forgot, you know, I never ever went fox for the best, Nash your crap. I mean, how often do we see that nowadays? Or how often did we see that? I've left fox for Nash, fox for crap, or vice versa. Yeah. So I went to fox um, because that was really linked in with the Angry Times days. Um, and I remember it got to November and I caught my 45th 20 on overnighters, never mind all the doubles. And I remember it was in the days of slide films. I caught the fish, did the self-timers, went back to Bivy. I couldn't even remember what the fish looked like. I could not remember right. what that, I thought. I can't even remember what that fish looked like. And it wasn't until I got the slides back three days later or four days later that I actually remember what the fish was. And I went, never again am I going to get into this chasing targets, be it fish weights, fish sizes, anger of the year, Sex, it, it just <laughs> it, it just became pointless. It, it just became, I just looked at, I thought, I cannot actually remember what that fish looks like. And I looked at the pictures and I got this vacant stare. And all I was thinking was 4520s, 4520s. And it meant nothing at all. It was just, I beat my own record. And, and that was, that was a really, that was a really big, a real big turning point in my fishing. I would say that was probably one of the biggest um, turning points in my fishing ever. You know, from that day onwards, which is 26 years ago, it, it doesn't matter. It, it, it doesn't matter how many I've caught. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned uh, high Nuval, which is obviously a high oh. protein milk, milk protein yeah. based bait. Uh, I think they, put um trips in in it as well that's right yeah, yeah. Which, which was obviously a there was a while where everyone was worried about trypsin inhibitors in eggs yeah. and, and things like that um i mean did when you started using that stuff high new valve which is quite radical back then 
did did things change for you? Do you did you see much of a difference in terms of a the fish that you caught and b that did the fish put weight on in lakes or anything like that? At all? Was, the, the year before, I'd used it in a straight bird seed, a straight bird seed. It was mm. just enovite gold chocolate malt, and that was a good bait. And then I've been talking to somebody about baits and I said, you know, I used to do really well on high naval in the winter and a coarse bird seed in the summer. And he said, you know, why don't you try and combine the two together? And so literally it was eight ounces of high naval, eight ounces of enovite gold and mixed with the, um, the chocolate malt and the chocolate powder palantir. Now, that chocolate powder palantir has not been available for probably 20 years. I've never found chocolate malt to be ever as good without combining it with the chocolate powder palatant. Those two combined together, not only smelt of it, but it gave it a roundness. It, mm. And all of a sudden, I was catching just as many carp as I was in March, as I was in June, as I was in July, as I was in September. And it seemed to be the right combination of food signal digestibility and desirability whereas with the Heineval I found it came into its own in the colder months and the Enovite gold in the warmer months but when I combined the two it, it I've never I can honestly say other than when I used the key for the first time I've never had a season when I caught so many carp not so easily but by using so much bait they were literally it was it was the only time where I've where I've actually baited spots where the carp weren't and held them in that area. And I think back then, that those kind of baits were quite new to the carp, right? Something like high new vow. I mean, that in the mid nineties, were there many high milk protein baits around? No, it was. It, I'd noticed that Mainline had come on with the, um, the the Grange, and that was an exceptional bait. That was an exceptional bait, and that was a very digestible bait. And that that it, it, I noticed that really, really did turn waters over. And I was competing with the Grange. You know, the, there was a lot of guys using mainline Grange. Um, and it was the, it was just one of those baits that it was one of those few baits that where I could compete with less bait against guys using more bait. And I'm not saying for one second it was as good as, as the Grange or anything like that. But I found that it was one of the baits where even if I couldn't get in a certain hot area, if I baited an area up over two or three nights, those fish were in that area and would stay in that area. And you know, it, to, to the extent was that I was throwing it in by hand, literally, so what, 10 yards at the most by hand, you know, rather than catapult, I was throwing it by hands, then just plop, 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 three in the margins and getting runs within an hour. It, it, it was that good and it, it was... The only reason I stopped using that bait was obviously the big, you know, the big fish mix era, and I couldn't get the chocolate powder palatant anymore. Mm, mm. Was there ever like a conflict between companies? So, for example, you're using sort of like a Nutribase um, base mix, and then you were using the, oh. the Nash powder palatant, and presumably the chocolate malt was that a Hutchie? No, no, that was that was Nash chocolate powder palatant. It was all. Oh, chocolate. okay. So it wasn't. No, I was thinking of the liquid flavour. You were saying. No, no. It was, the, the, it, it was. It was the. It was the. Um, it was the Nash chocolate uh, malt, which was very syrupy. Very. It was almost. Okay. It was almost like molasses, and the mm -hmm. chocolate powder palatant was um, almost like Ovaltine. 
when you taste it, it was like chocolate over, you know, and the two blended together beautifully. And I've always gone on to mm. Gary Bays about it, but he just, um, uh, they just can't get it. So was there a conflict? Well, I've always been a person who's, who's not done it for money. And I've always been very honest about what I use. And, you know, with Nutribates, um, I earned them far more far more than they ever they gave me a small retainer and free bait and i would say i did far more for nutribates uh, in sales than i ever took off them um, and to be honest i've not been one for being told what to use when it's not my job i wasn't a salaried employee of nutribates Dower Nash. Yes, I received a consultancy, but not the. I always made it clear that I wasn't going to go all in with one company because that just wasn't me at all. No, that's which it. Was, which, which was a bit of a conflict with Fox in the later years. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, and we'll get to that in a bit. <laughs> oh, go on, yeah, carry on. Uh, yeah, well, well, the, the, the next area was, and this is something p- people won't know about particularly, with practical carp fishing taking off, um, um, obviously Crowwood was like, you know, oh, that book has, I mean, that's done 14,000 sales, which is a lot of sales. Mm-hmm. And Crowwood said, would you like to write another book? So literally two years later, so 1995, I wrote Successful Carp Fishing. And with Successful Carp Fishing, I covered the areas I didn't cover in Practical Carp Fishing and obviously did it for a more, you know, it was a more high-tech version. And again, that sold very well, but obviously not going to... You never sell more of your second book than you do of your first. (laughs) That's just the the way of the world. Um, And also at that time, Kevin Maddox approached me and he said, look, you know, he, he wasn't daft, Kevin. He said, would you be willing to write a very basic cart book for BK? Now, Kevin obviously was my hero. And I said, yeah, of course I will. So I wrote uh, a book called The BK Guide to Starting Cart Fishing. And therein was a disaster that not many people will know about. Now, Crowwood's book, Successful Cart Fishing, was £20. That came out in 1995. And... I wrote the BK Guide to Starting Carping, which came out either at the end of 95 or the start of 1996. Um, and I think it would be the start of 1996. And I um, I was home one weekend and a letter came from Crowwood Books. And um, I thought, oh, this, this is nice. It's obviously, And I opened it and in, in effect, it was a lawyer's letter. And it said, um, this is a copy of your contract. Your contract says that you must not do anything prejudicial to the sales of your existing books which is obviously to stop you you know writing two books and saying my books are crap don't buy them (laughs) you know to spite them but they said we view that you writing another book for a rival company that's cheaper will prejudicially affect the sales of successful carp fishing you need to get that book stopped or we're going to sue you well obviously i've written this book for kevin maddox i wasn't in a position to get the book recalled Mm -hmm. at all there was no book there's, a, there's no way. So I've got a big company, Crower Books, saying we're going to sue you. And <laughs> I've got Kevin Maddox quite rightly saying, well, I'm not taking my book back. You know, I've not done anything yeah. in breach of contracts. And so I'm the man in the middle. And I consulted um, uh, Fox, his solicitor, about this matter. And he said, um, you've got a case, Jules. He says, um, 
your argument is that the cheaper book will promote you and it will get people to buy the more expensive book. Mm -hmm. He says, that's the argument that you would have in the high court. If you lose in the high court, you are going to lose £80,000. You don't have business investments. The people who are suing you will have high for a highly paid firm of solicitors. If they lose, they'll be covered on you know, their insurance. My advice is that you take it on the chin and do whatever Crow would want to get it, you know, get it back. So, in effect, we had to settle out a court. I had to give them all the money back for successful carp fishing, pay their solicitors' fees, oh, and just no take way. it on the chin. Yeah, and take it on the chin. Mm. So that cost me a considerable amount of money. Yeah, and how how many copies of that book do you say you sold? So, I well, not practical carp, successful carp fishing. Um, a considerable amount, and I had yeah. to return all the. So, I, in effect, I wrote that book for free. Wow. Wow. Now you have to, my, this is where I'm not very good. And it, this is, is this the book? This isn't the book that you stopped fishing for, which we spoke about earlier. That no, was the first book was practical carp fishing. The second book was successful carp fishing, okay. which, was the, yeah. which was the updated version of it, which was well, not the update. It was the same. So it covered winter carp fishing. It covered mm -hmm. particle fishing. It covered carp concept. It, it, it was a part two of practical carp fishing. Yeah. And Crowwood's contract said that I must not write anything prejudicial. Now, to me, that was like I can't write articles saying that successful is a crap book and don't buy it. That's that's what I believed it to be. But their view was that because I've written for uh, written another book, that was prejudicial to the sales. And I said, well, no, no, this is a £10 book. This will promote your book. I write articles that promote your book. But that's not their view their solicitors took. So we had to settle. But it was... Um, it was what 25 years ago but it's not what you wanted no no i can i, I can imagine. I, you know you, you, when, when i by then i just moved into a new house and all of a sudden i'm thinking i'm going to lose my house i'm going to lose my shirt you know yeah. i'm not in a position to get kevin maddox to stop the book i'm not in a position to you know fight it in the high court so I, in effect i just have to say you know, sometimes you've got to take it on the chin and I had to repay them the money, which was a substantial amount of money when I just moved into a new house with zero savings left. Yeah. It's horrible, isn't it? You just you're the little guy as well, you know. Oh yeah, that was and... I'm the little guy. But there was a way out of it in that Kevin Maddox contacted me and we did the practical carp fishing videos. Right. I was gonna say, was there sort of um there was a solution there then, so there wasn't any animosity on that front. Oh, no, no, Kevin was fine about it. Kevin supported my thing. He, you know, Kevin, Kevin, you know, there, there was nothing underhand. Kevin was very supportive of me, but literally said, look, I promoted the book. I was selling the book. I can't get the book back. It wasn't Kevin's fault. We, 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 we were great mates then. We're still great mm -hmm. mates. And we came up with an idea where I could earn some more money um, by doing the practical carp fishing videos. Because yeah. I don't know if you remember in the olden days, there were very, there was certainly no television programs on carp fishing. Kevin had released um, some videos through Len Gerd, the original video company, called Carp from the Start, I think, or something like that. And he'd done three, which were very successful. And he'd formed Clean River Videos, um, which, was a, which was an offshoot of BK, doing all sorts of videos. Literally, um, he would do pole fishing, cap, whoever was Bob Nord, Des Taylor, and he wanted somebody to do carp fishing videos, and I was the man to do carp fishing videos. So we did four carp fishing videos, 
it, very simple. Each video paid me two grand. Nice. So four video, four videos, eight grand. Grand up front, and a grand when you finish the um, the filming. So literally, we did um, we did four videos in a couple of months. One cameraman, one director, and one girl doing the sound. I wrote the script. Yeah. <laughs> there was no, you know, there was no scripts written. I literally, it was off the top of my head. And again, we did exceptionally well with those. All those videos went into the shops. Um, I took them to conferences. I sold hundreds of those. So that, that, that got me out of a sticky hole. Yeah, I can, I can believe it. Did they ever get televised at all? Or was it just purely like VHS? But they, they were purely VHS, but then they got turned into DVDs, and then they're now available on Amazon Prime. No way. Yeah, no, yeah. You, if go. you go down if, on Amazon Prime, you can get them on Amazon Prime. Now, it, it was quite funny when I look back. You know, it was all done to film, and I, and Liam Dale, who's the I was in touch with last week. Liam would always say to me, "Stop saying video, Julian. It's a film." So I would say, "Hi, welcome to my video." It's say cut and if you've ever done films it's not as easy as you imagine mm. with a video film you are looking at a red light you're not looking you're not you know when i do a slideshow i've got somewhere between 50 and 300 or 400 or 500 people looking at back at me so you're getting interaction when you are talking to camera you are simply talking at the red dot you're not getting anything back from the red dot you were talking to the red dot and that in effect is your one to ten thousand viewers now it looks very easy until you have to do it yourself yeah no i, I can believe that i don't think i'm the guy <laughs> for in front of a camera <laughs> it's it, it is it is quite hard and you know we filmed them here we filmed them at uh, bk we filmed them at my mum dad's house we filmed them at willow pool and we, we in effect we did four videos practical carp fishing one two three and four um, two on weedy waters, two on gravel pits. And again, they sold like hot cakes. I, I remember, um, again, part of the deal with Ke with Kevin was that I would get 50 sets of the videos, which I would sell at the Carp Society Winter Conference. And we literally, I think I think we put the videos out at um, two for £20, which was a tenner each. And I remember, I, you know, I was with Julie at the time, and there was a 1,000, we, we sold all 50 sets within... The morning, you know, <laughs> it was it was incredible. It was it was the happiest of days. Yeah, no, no, I can believe it. Um, I can imagine, like you're saying, sort of making mistakes and things back in the oh. day. It was all on like on um like a film roll as well. So oh yeah, it was, you've got he, an angry director and he he was very good. Was Liam? He was very um, obviously he'd worked with anglers. He didn't work, but none of these were professional actors. He had worked with professional actors, but he was having to work with with um anglers um and the thing is i'd done my own script you know so i told him this is what we're going to do so he knew what we were going to do and he would say you've got two minutes on that you've got six minutes on that you've got two minutes on that wrap it up do it again and you get into the habit of doing it and it was quite good and i had a chance with liam um to do more stuff which would have been on national tv but again that would have meant giving my job up yeah yeah, which actually is a point I jumped across. Now, anybody who ever read Carp Talk, I was one of the four people who was going to set Carp Talk up with Chris Ball, Tim Paisley, Kevin Clifford and me. We had all the meetings. But the reality was that Tim had still got Angley Publications. Chris had still got his print business and Kevin had got his own business. 
it would have meant me leaving my my business, you know, working for the court. And so I was not, so having been one of the four people that was going to set it up, um, I, it wasn't for me. I, I, so in fact, I, I wrote for it rather than there was an owner of it. Why do you think you never sort of stepped into that, the full-time sort of fishing career, Julian? Um, it's always been a passion, never a job. Yeah. I never wanted it to be a job. I, I adore my... Um, I loved working in the courts. I love the people I work. I love carp fishing. I love the history of carp fishing. Did I want it to be a job? I'd seen far... For every Tim Paisley and Chris Ball that loves it as a job and is still passionate about their angling, there were 9,999 people who would moan about it. If you join, you know... I can't be bothered to go fishing. When you're talking to anglers all day, the last thing you want to do is go fishing. I never wanted to be that guy. Mm. Yes, it's a refreshing take. You, you know, there's a lot of youngsters now, aspiring sort of youngsters who want to, you know, make, make a real go at the sort of the fishing industry. Yeah, um, and, and, and some can do. Now, the, the, the difference is I'd worked at court between 1980 and... The first time I could, in effect, so 1994 would have been the first time, in effect, I could have left my court job and done another job. So that I was 14 years in then. And after 14 years, if you still like your job, had I only been one year in, I might have gone, do you know what, I'll give this a go. Or had I not done anything else, I probably would have given it a go. But 14 years into something you enjoy. Um, and, and I'm an equally as passionate now, so we're... We are now, what, it's 2021. I caught my first carp by design in 1984-ish. So we're talking, what, 20... We're talking 35 years, and I'm still as passionate now as I was 35 years ago. So I think I made the right decision. <laughs> yeah. Yes, certainly certainly sounds like it. Um, so I think we sort of... We got up to... Um, I think, well, you've done your video, so 1996. So... The, the next on your sort of itinerary is 97. Um... Yeah, it was, it, it, it became quite strange. Um, as the 90s progressed and carp fishing exploded, it was clear to me that at one stage I was quite a big fish in a small pool because there was, if you picked up Angry Times, I was the carp writer. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden in the late when carp fishing kicked off big style, corder had exploded, mainline had exploded, carp fishing had exploded. And all of a sudden, there was a lot more anglers competing for the same coverage. So instead of being one of the half a dozen or a dozen go-to guys, magazines, uh, videos, bait companies, conferences had hundreds of people they could choose from and all of a sudden i could see that whoa it was it was it's strange to explain but all of a sudden you think actually um you know it's not there's not just me out there anymore there are other guys who can do it just as well as me and can do it cheaper than me could do it in the south or could do it in norfolk I'm not the only go-to guy who can deliver an article on bait or an article on rigs or an article on Willow Park. And, you know, it, 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 
it was it was an era of change. It was almost um, you know coming to terms with that um, that there are not not only are you might think you're Kiss, but there's Motley Crue, there's Aerosmith, there's mm-hmm. Bon Jovi, and I could see you know the younger generation coming in, um, and it, it was quite you know I wouldn't say it was difficult, but all of a sudden I realised that I needed to take stock because um, the times they were are changing. Yeah, did you sort of, um, I guess, see see your um, like yourself in the industry? Did you sort of like think that you had to keep relevant? Was it something you sort yeah. of strived for, or was it something you weren't too? Um, I, I realised that in, to many people, I was becoming less relevant. And um, we'd launched Crafty Carper with Tim. You know, that was that again. That was a really great. That that I, I was the editor of Crafty Carper. Um, that was that was an important area because I, I then was you know sourcing all the material, um, but by ninety seven ninety eight yeah I I wasn't the go to guy for everything whereas for three or four years earlier I had been the go to guy you know there were a there were a lot of other people um, doing things and I was starting to get that well you'd be more relevant if you came to Yately you'd be more relevant if you fished. Uh, at linear you'd be more relevant if you did these tv videos you'd be more relevant if perhaps you gave up the court job and you know i i could see the writing was on the wall i was i was sort of betwixt and between for want of a better expression yeah so is, is there anything you sort of changed or no, to be, played a no. big part of the scene so uh, it was something i had to come to terms with um you know I, I really did have to come to terms with it um with fox fox had become very um very corporate there's not a criticism fox were very we expect you to use fox hair stops we expect you to use fox tent pegs we expect mm-hmm. you to use fox line and it started to sit a bit uncomfortably with me because i was never that kind of guy um, and um, there were, you know, there were other people who were vying for position. And I stood down from Fox and I went back to Nash, who, um, in fact, to be fair, Kevin wrote a letter to me, which I still got saying, there are rumours that you are not going to stay with Fox. And he, he, he invited me back to Nash and he said, I understand you can use what you want. You'll still want to use Nutribate. So it was quite nice to go home to to um to Nash, although I, I love my time with Fox as well, but it, it had become a bit corporate um, mm-hmm. for me, you know. Um, and it was clear that the fishing industry was now industry with a big eye. You know, it was becoming, it wasn't a profitable sideline. It wasn't, um, it was becoming an industry. Well, in the 90s, it, it, it became a big industry. Um, and I wasn't prepared to jump in with both feet, to be quite honest. Angley Times has said to me, look, you know, we love the weekly column. We need you to go further afield, which I did, catch 22, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's like, there's this new guy, Terry Hearn, and we've got Rob Hughes, and we've got Brian Scoyles. We'd like you to do, you know, one week, and then let them do a week, and you can do a quarter, you know. So although you would do one full week yourself, Every other week, you would, you know, you would bring people with up to date with what you were doing, and mm-hmm. I can quite understand that, you know. But it's quite a shock to go from a weekly double page colour column to be told you're in every four weeks, and you know, it started to get, um, 
it was quite difficult. And I was trying to balance too many balls as well. I was, you know, I was writing for Big Carp, Advanced Carp Fishing, Crafty Carper, Carp World, Angley Times, Carp Talk. So, you know, I wasn't being minimalised, but I, it was impossible to keep all them balls in the air. Yeah. And did you feel pressure with your fishing as well? Did you feel like you needed uh, to get results? I did, I, did feel, I did feel pressure that I needed to go regularly to deliver the material, but it was very difficult when you're also having to de deliver material for five magazines and deliver different material. Now, mm. delivering material for five magazines in 1991 wouldn't have been a problem because there weren't 392 other capable people. There were seven or ten or whatever. But by the time the ninth, the late nineties came on, you know, it was a new era. It was the era of Terry Hearn. It was the, you know, the Rob Maley big fish scene, Yately, uh, places like that. They, they were making the headlines, and that wasn't really my scene. And um, you know, I, I was by then I was the um, assistant editor of Cart World, and I was trying to balance. You know, I was trying to balance too many, too many balls at once. To be honest, it, it, it was becoming very difficult it was starting to um starting to go into my private life as well no you know i was fishing two nights a week because i had to but then at weekends i was having to write as well and fishing was becoming a business mm, that's it did the, did the writing get easier i know you said sort of like you um you stopped very for writing your first book you see for me I've never I've never written and I've certainly never written about fishing, but I often thought I'd use my time on the bank. Um, never wrote be... on the bank ever. Never wrote on the bank ever. Ever. Yeah. Why is that? Just and when I'm fishing, I'm fishing. And when I'm writing, I'm writing. And when I go fishing, people say, why don't you do tutorials? Because I'm fishing for me. I don't mean selfishly. When I go fishing, I'm not chatting with other people. Uh, I, you know, it's, it, I don't, when I go cycling, I don't cycle in a group of 26 people. You know, it, I'm one of those people, I've, if I say I'm a loner, that's probably, I'm more of a loner than I am, a, than, you know, I have lots of friends, but I tend to do things on my own. And uh, writing, I find dead easy. But if you're having to cover five publications, all of a sudden, it's difficult to come up with five variations when you're only fishing two or three different waters. And at the end, when you get to a certain level, you know the two, three, four tactics that are working. You know, I wasn't prepared to start doing stuff that I didn't believe in. So it was becoming very difficult. It was certainly starting to affect my private life, big style. Mm. Yeah, no, and um, yeah, to, to get new material, like you say, you're just covering old ground, especially in your own fishing. Yeah, yeah, I, I realised that I was covering old ground, and I, I obviously doing overnighters, I'm limited to one of, you know, one of six waters locally. Yes, the fish were a lot bigger, I was catching 30 pounders on a more regular basis, but I was fishing local waters, I knew what worked, and you tended to be doing, there's only so many ways that you can write about the same thing from different, you know, I, I, I fished a, a lot of the local waters and my writing was, um, it was, it wasn't stagnating, but there's only so much, so many words you can write on carp fishing. And I remember this because when Tim, when Big Carp first came out, I looked at Big Carp and it was all of the biggest names in carp fishing in there. And I said to Tim, look at this, he's got, 
He's got Zen and Bojko. He's got, he's got, he had all the, you know, Stevie Olcott. He had all the big names. And I remember Tim saying to me, I'm not worried, mate. He says, those guys will not be able to do a monthly column every month. He says, they are big carp anglers. They are not writers. And I, and I realized, you know, there are people who catch big carp. There are people who are right. And the people who write to go carp fishing. But it got to the stage where, um, trying to come up with it. There's only so much you can write about the same thing in five magazines. Did, did you kind of almost see yourself as the, the people's carp angler? Um, I did to a certain extent. Yeah, I, I would say that I, I, I felt that I, um, a lot of the carp fishing that made the news and made the headlines had very little relevance to the bulk of people who went carp fishing it was it certainly made the headlines but the majority of people who went carp fishing didn't carp fish like that so although yately and dinton and longfield and savvy and horton was very glamorous 95 percent of the people didn't do that kind of fishing mm. yet the magazines the conferences they wanted that kind of thing and I wasn't, you know, I was either after I was either going to have to change myself completely to step into that world, or I was going to have to be true to myself and accept the consequences, you know. And and if you do accept the consequences, then you know that that's what happens. You know, you can either start flitting all over the place and try and be everything to everybody and end up nothing to anybody, or you can just do what you feel is best. It wasn't a job; it was a passion, and I. And by the end of the 90s, it, it had become very, very difficult indeed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, just backtracking a little bit here. Obviously, you're talking about, you know, writing books alongside Kevin Maddox, doing some some videos, as you'd say, with Kevin Maddox. Yeah. I mean, he's he's absolute, you know, legend and an idol to many people. What was it like rubbing shoulders with with people like that that were so kind of instrumental in in the progression of carp angling and the knowledge of carp angling? Um, I, I was in the early years. I was very very much starstruck. But what I did note was all the people I rubbed shoulders with that had made it were good people. All the people that I rubbed shoulders with that wanted to make it were pain in the ass. So. <laughs> The guy, your Andy Littles, your Rod Hutchinsons, your Peter Broxups, your Tim Paisleys, your Kevin Nash, your Kevin Maddox, all those people who had been successful, they were the nicest people. They got nothing to prove to anybody. And they treat me in the late 80s, early 90s, the same way that they treat me now. And I, and I was... I was so lucky to be at the right place at the right time. And the inspiration those guys gave me, you know, I watched them guys and knew that they were a different gravy from what I could do. But I also realized they weren't doing anything I couldn't do. There was no magic. There was no secrets. They weren't, they weren't pop stars. They weren't scientists. They weren't inventing a cure for cancer. Yeah. But I understood the level they operated at. And, I was rubbing shoulders with my with my heroes, my angling icons, and people can poo poo that and say they're not heroes. They're you know a footballer. You know, it, it, in effect, it was like David Beckham saying, 
come and play football with me. You know, when Kevin Maddox says, let's write a book together. Yeah. Or can you, re <laughs> can you rewrite the chapter on bait for carp fever? Or Rod Hutchinson, you know, I did a, a column for Crafty, Hutchie and Jules. I yeah. co-wrote a book with Andy Little. My Jeez. passion for carp was just my interviews with Andy Little. I interviewed all these guys um, at the famous fisheries, at the houses. So I was beyond blessed. And so when the 90s started to crumble a bit, it didn't really bother me because I didn't feel I got anything to prove I, because I knew that those guys didn't ever feel they had anything to prove. And it was more in the minds of other people than it was in their minds. So once you can take yourself out of this, I'm having to prove myself, life becomes quite simple. And although it was very difficult in my private life and my fishing life at that time, and things started to collapse around me, um, I never lost interest in fishing. Never, 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 ever, never lost interest in fishing, ever. Yeah. Having spent time, as you have, with these kind of, you know, big names, which I, I've never done that, obviously, um, what was your kind of takeaway from them? What would you say kind of sets them apart and then what would you say to someone else maybe someone that's younger that really wants to start you know catching a lot of fish or a lot of big fish or whatever it may be what kind of pearls of wisdom would you pass down from having spent time with these these great anglers yeah absolutely there, there, there was it was either right or it was shite as one angler told me wow. it, it was there was not that's just about right. It's either spot on or it's not spot on. There was, there, forget about the pub chucks. These guys made it look simple because they, because to them it was simple. Them giving 100% was natural. These guys didn't give it 70%. There, I'm sure on occasions they didn't fish, but these guys gave it a hundred percent all the time they always gave it they would they, they love the fishing and they were clinical with it they were clinical with it absolutely clinical with it so all the guys who are the most successful carp anglers i've seen there is no room for error i don't think terry Earn does pub chucks i certainly don't think greg ellis does pub chucks Dave Lane might say he does but Dave Lane might move five nights he might move mm. five times that session the, the trick is they make it look a lot easier than it is. You can't buy experience. You cannot become Dave Lane in five years because Dave Lane has become Dave Lane over 25 years. Terry Hearn didn't just appear in 1998. He'd spent probably 10 years before that learning his trade. You know, you have to accept it will take you time. But the thing is, people don't catch enough carp. They spend too much time on the internet and they don't spend enough time catching carp. Until you catch carp and promote them, you are not going to be recognised. You just need to keep catching lots and lots and lots of carp because that's what brings you to the attention of the masses. Typing on the internet snide comments and stuff is not going to make you famous. Mm. Yeah, the only famous the anglers are people who've caught lots of carp. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I love it's right or it's shite. <laughs> I like that. And yeah. it, every now and then in, in all areas of life, whether it's, you know, relationships or business or just being yeah. happy, you, you'll get these little snippets of information, these little sayings, or certainly I do, and they kind of stick with you. And it's right or yeah. it's shite. To me, what that says is, you know, th those anglers like 
it's not a case of oh that would do that will be all right. It's it's they're getting it perfect or they're not doing it at all. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and that could be everything from getting up first to making sure the hooks are the sharpest to getting the best swim. Um, yeah. They are not content. None of them were content to be second place. And I don't mean they had to catch more than anybody else, but when they went fishing, they had to give it their very best. Andy Little didn't just say to me, you know what, Jules, you catch them all, I'll just sit back. I would sit with Andy Little, and he would, there's something in him that made him want to catch more. That He couldn't, he couldn't down tune. He played on 10 all the time. Andy Little could not fish at 50%. All the best anglers cannot fish at 50%. And so when I learned to actually give it 100% every time I go fishing, I became a better angler. And you will only become a good angler if you give it your all every time. And if you don't love fishing, you won't be able to give it your all every time because it's, it's not important. It has to be important to you. When it's important, you'll do a good job. If it's not important, you won't do a good job. There's, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. It's got to matter. And for all those guys, it has mattered. That's what makes them drive 200 miles to bait up. Or that's what makes them move in the middle of the night. Or that's what makes them, you know, take six months off fishing to write a book. If it doesn't matter, you won't do these things. I can't make it matter to you. Cycling does not matter enough to me you know, to, to make me want to do that, to get up at five in the morning and do three hours on the turbocharger. But I'll get up at five in the morning to drive three hours to get to be there first on the lake. So the, the, it is just literally one piece of information. If it matters, you'll do it. If it doesn't matter, you won't. Yeah. Very good advice. There we go, folks. It, yeah, it sounds like you want you want to be a <clears throat> you want to be relentless in your quest to catch carp, and when yeah. you're doing it, you want to be an absolute perfectionist. That's what it sounds like. If you want to be the the true creme de la creme, which to be honest, I don't. I'd rather just you know rock up, have a few beers, do my night in, which is fine, isn't it? It's horses for courses. But for those that really want yeah. to go for it, it you've got to be bloody minded by the sounds of it, don't you? I, I'm prepared for anybody to tell me one successful sports person in any sport yeah. who's become successful by can't be asked. 100%. Every single bit, Ronaldo, um, Ronnie O'Sullivan, they've, they make it look easy, but believe you me, if you knew the effort they put in to get to where they are, you cannot be, being, be successful by being lucky or by a can't be asked attitude. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Oasis played every single dingy, horrible cesspit before they ever started doing the big gigs. They make it look easy now, or Liam and whatever. But to get there, they had to suffer hard times. Nobody's a successful or a well-known carp angler, if that's what you want to be, by pure accident. Nobody delivers it on a plate to you, anybody. Yeah. At the end of the 90s, of course, it all came crashing down for me. Um, I split up with Julie. Um, uh, car, all of a sudden, I left Angling Times. I was, um, I was persona, well, what says persona non There was a new editor of the magazines, and you were yesterday's news. So what goes up comes down. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The, the end of Julie and Jules. What what happened there? Yeah. Can you can you leave us on that note or not? 
You better not. Uh, yeah, of course I can. Um, literally, no, it's fine. It was, um, you know, it was uh, that, that, you know, it was a ten-year relationship, and it was a relationship that perhaps my carp fishing had taken over um, what it should be in order to keep my head afloat. I was spending more time carp fishing, writing about carp fishing, you know, uh, and, and you know that doesn't always work. It, it, you know, it might work for somebody who's fifty-five but it doesn't work for somebody who's 35. So, you know, it was the end of a relationship. Um, but without the end of that relationship, I wouldn't have been, you know, so lucky to have my relationship with Ros. So, you know, but you've, as I said earlier, you have got to grit your teeth. You don't, you, you know, there's no, no point in me saying to Tim, oh, by the way, relationships ended, Tim. Um, I need three years off writing. Oh, by the way, Kevin, um, I need three years off writing. I don't want to go fishing anymore. You ain't got a job. So, but because I love my fishing so much, it carried me through. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and I think that that concludes the nineties. And unless there's any more to add, um, yeah. No, no, that 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 in effect was the end. Of the nineties was the golden era, and the next ten years were really, really, really tough. When you read in two thousand and three on the internet, whatever happened to Julian Cundiff and. Didn't, wasn't he the guy who used to write for Angley Times? And you think, I'm still fishing just as much. I'm catching more than ever. But because I'm not in the publications, I'm yesterday's news. And, it, 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 you know, the mm. 2000 to 2000 and, you know, 2007, 2008, that was a tough six, seven years, yeah? What, what caused that drop-off then? I wasn't in the magazines. There were new editors. Um... I wasn't prepared to travel to the venues that made the headlines. Um, I wasn't linked with the right companies for high profile. I wasn't on TV. And as I said before, it's the opposite of the, of the sexiest angler. Perception is reality. So mm. the perception is, if I'm not in the magazines every month, I'm not doing it any month. And that's a snowball effect. You've got to remember, you have a big turnover of anglers. And so a newcomer angler who picks up the magazine that you're not in doesn't go, whatever happened to Julian Cundiff is, who the hell is Julian Cundiff? You know, so it's, it, it, you know, for, for, you know, for a good seven years, I was, I was in magazines on an irregular basis. Um, but, you know, I was not the first name that people went to. And the huge tur turnover of anglers wouldn't know who I was until the start of, you know, Diary of an Everyday Carp Angler, Short Session Success, the internet, um, social media, um, you know, and, and literally kicking myself up the arse once again. Mm. Yeah, I mean, to bring it up to date, you know, let's forget the 90s and the 80s now. This day and age, obviously, you've you've been around carp angling most of your life. What is car I said real cheesy question, so apologies about this, but what is carp angling for you nowadays? Um, it's got to be something that gets me out of bed. I'm 58, um, you know, and uh, as you get older, you've got less time on this planet and you need to spend your time more wisely. So it's got to be something that I enjoy on my own terms. So carp fishing to me is is it always was on my own terms, but it's become even more my own terms. I have to enjoy the waters I'm fishing. I have to enjoy the company I've got. I've got to enjoy the way I do it. I've got to enjoy the times I do it. So it's become, um, I've got, 
I'm I'm less prepared to put up with stuff I don't like. So carp fishing to me is is a massive part of my life. But to allow it to be a massive part of my life nowadays, it's got to be right. And it is. I am now probably as happy in my carp fishing as I ever have been, ever. I'm more successful in my carp fishing than I am, ever have been, ever. I'm probably more well-known in my carp fishing. And that's only because if I take you right back to the start, the joy of fishing. I love fishing. I love carp fishing. And no matter how many times I lose a sponsor or don't get in a magazine or have a bad year, it doesn't make any difference because I'm doing it on my own terms. Yeah. And there were, there were years when I didn't do it on my own terms. You know, I was having to write for five magazines because that was expected of me. I only write now for people I want to write for, uh, you know, uh, and I only do what I want to do because I'm in a position where I, I can choose to do that. The people I'm associated with are people I like. The companies I'm associated with are companies I like. And, you know, I'm sponsored by Nash, yet Corda put me on their podcast. So I would like to think that the ups and downs and ups again have, put me in a good position yeah you know if you are true to yourself you can't come unstuck if you're trying to be somebody else you will come unstuck and i've only ever tried to be me there were areas when i wanted to be kevin nash there were areas when i wanted to be kevin maddox there were areas when i wondered why terry was getting all the limelight but at the end of the day i've only ever wanted to be me and that's worked for me and and that that advice can carry on into all aspects of life, can't it? You know, it's it's that absolutely, wide, absolutely wise words. Yeah, yeah. Don't try and be somebody you're not. If you can, if you just try and be the best version of you. Beautiful, beautiful, Pete. While whilst we've still got uh, Julian, anything else you want to end on, Pete? No, I don't think so. I think that's been rounded off quite nicely. Julian, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, for people that want to look you up on social media or get involved in what you're doing in this present day and age, where can they find you? Where can they follow what you're doing right now? Well, j just go to Facebook and type in, if you type in Julian Cundiff Angling on Facebook, that's, that's my instructional page, which everybody's welcome to. And then there's Julian P. Cundiff, which is just my normal Facebook page. Mm. So my normal Facebook page is family, fishing, life in general, whereas Julian Cundiff Angling on Facebook is simply how-to carp fishing. And, of course, you can find me on Instagram if you type in uh, Jules Cundiff one then you'll, you'll find or Jules Cundiff on Instagram. So if you just type my name in Instagram, I'll pop up there as well. Yeah. And the Julian Cundiff angling, I believe that's a Facebook group, isn't it? Um, that's a Facebook group. You just type yeah. that in. It's a group. Yeah. Just type that in. And it's just instructional on how to catch carp. So I think there's been 70 odd topics, everything hooks. It's, it literally is practical carp fishing in bits and pieces for 2021. Yeah. Perfect. I hope I don't get sued. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you won't. Freedom of speech and all that on Facebook in this day and age. Yeah, you'll yeah. be all right. You'll be all right. Julian, thank you so much. Pleasure to have you on. Lovely chatting to you. My absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you. No problem, guys. Mm -hmm.